Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to be looking at the population development around the world. Our guest speaker is someone who's been in this field for many years. Mr. John Seeger is the president and CEO of Population Connection. Mr. Seeger was appointed to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency during the Clinton administration. John Seeger, welcome to today's Global Connections program. It's a pleasure to be with you, Bill. <clears throat> Thank you. I greatly appreciate you being with me. Let's just start off with a very basic question, John. What is Population Connection? When was it formed? What's, it main, what's its main mission? And is it a 501c3 nonprofit organization? Well, Bill, Population Connection was formed under the name Zero Population Growth back in 1968. We changed our name about 20 years ago to Population Connection. And we are and always have been a 501c3 grassroots organization that tries to do two things. First of all, we try to educate young Americans about population challenges. We don't try to tell them what to think. We just try to get them to think. And second, we try to be effective advocates on behalf of voluntary programs to help achieve population stabilization uh, on this tiny crowded planet of ours. And for our viewers who would like more information, they can go to www.populationconnection.org and they can also be a member of Population Connection or make contributions. It is a 501c3 group. Is that correct? Indeed. All our information is available to anyone who'd like it, however, at our website. Uh, we publish a quarterly magazine and we put the issues up there and we find that Population Connects to just about everything you can think of. It certainly does, and <laughs> we're going to get into that right now. John, so often we hear people say, we have finite resources on this planet, we don't have infinite resources, and we have right now, I guess, about, what, 7.8 billion people in the, in the world. How is, it's kind of a theoretical question, but how many people can a, this planet sustain and sustain in a, a regular fashion as far as being able to provide some of the basic amenities? Well, getting at that number entails asking two questions first. How do you wanna live? And how do you want everybody else to live? Not just people here in the United States, but around the world and the people who aren't even here yet. And that doesn't even mention all the other critters we share the planet with. So these questions are value questions they get to the question of what you consider a good life, how much you're concerned about the life of others here and to come. And so you can't really put a hard number on it. However, if you look at it in the context of climate change based on available technology today, we are far past any sustainable capacity. That capacity is not a fixed number, but we're well past it at the moment. Other Folks have mentioned, they say, well, you know, 7.8 7 billion people is not a huge number. Well, it is to me anyway. But they say you can put the, all these people in the state of Texas and there'd still be, there'd be plenty of room to move around. But I think you've hit it on the head. They could move, but it depends upon what your lifestyle would be, your standard of living, your quality of life. And it really is dependent upon how many amenities that we have. I guess, do we see that uh, folks are becoming more concerned about overpopulation issues? 
Well, just a word about Texas. It's, it's a big state, and that's for sure. And you could jam everybody in there. In fact, if we all wanted to be shoulder to shoulder, we could fit into Los Angeles County. But what happens if one of us gets thirsty or needs to go to the bathroom? And what about all the other species? Uh, what do you do about that? One of the species you find in Texas is a critter called the cave spider. And I'm not sure exactly who wants to volunteer to sit next to the cave spider. But the point is, there's a lot going on in this world. In terms of the level of interest, I think it depends on who you are and where you are. Certainly for the tens of millions of Americans, not to mention hundreds of millions around the world who've been experiencing extraordinarily bad weather recently, there is a link between that kind of weather and climate. And there's a link between climate and population. It's a matter of connecting the dots and seeing what those relationships are. The uh, United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, has done, I guess, six major reports since back 1988 when it was put together. What does the most recent report tell us as far as the climate crisis and how we need to move forward to deal with it and that link to population development? The IPCC is not prone to speaking in panic-stricken terms, but they are pushing the panic button at this point. We are at a point where the damage from climate change, from climate chaos, is past that tipping point. One of the things they noted in one of their reports was that if we shut down every fossil fuel emitting engine on Earth today, every single one of them, the glaciers would continue to melt for centuries, if not millennia. We are altering the entire structure of our global environment. We depend on this thin band of air, this fraction of clean water, and this tiny band of soil for our survival. And we are altering our climate in ways that have never happened in human history. And the damage is mounting day by day, week by week, and it's clearly related to the number of humans on the planet. The demographers and climate, well, population specialists for years have said the replacement rate of any country to maintain your current population is 2.1 children per woman, I guess it is. What, what is our rate today in the United States and some of the other more, as they call them, more mature countries that are not hitting that 2.1 child or children per family or per woman. So what, where are we today? The United States is now just a shade above 1.7 children per woman. Replacement rate is a pretty straightforward concept. If you think about it, a couple has two kids, they're replacing themselves. It's, it's a little more to it than that, but that's basically the equation. Around the world, we have made considerable progress. In the middle of the last century, the average woman on earth had, two, had five children. Today, she has about 2.5, so we've made great progress. But the fact is that we stick around for quite a while as a species, 80, 90, 100 plus years. So the fertility choices, the outcomes that occurred many decades ago are still part and parcel of our numbers today. It's worth noting that we still add about 80 million people to the planet each and every year. Of the 200 plus countries on earth, nearly 100 are now below replacement rate, which is real progress. 
but that means there are still more than 100 that are above that rate. The replacement rate or the fertility rate was usually the highest in the, in the developing countries, economically developing countries. Are those rates coming down also, uh, not to the same level of Japan or the United States, but are they, are they trending downward? In some cases they are, in some cases they are not. If you look at the countries with the largest families on earth, places in Africa like Chad and Niger, women there have more than six children each. And there are places, unfortunately, where we're seeing no progress whatsoever. And that is a very bad sign for the people who live there and for our entire planet. How does the replacement rate and population development tie into our economy? Because our economy, well, in the United States is a mixed economy, but really around the world, it's pretty much of a capitalist economy that depends upon an increase in customers, a, a burgeoning or an increase in population, let's say, to create more customers, more workers, that type of thing. How does a society like Japan, which has been a mature society for years as far as population replacement, how, how is that affected? There's been some good studies of the economic future in Japan. And what they found that as their population declines, which is what it's now doing, the GDP, the gross domestic product of Japan is projected to decline. But what's key here is their per capita GDP. The amount of income for each person is slated to go up. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a little more interested in my per capita GDP than I am in some aggregate number. What we need to look at in terms of economies is how are people faring? How are they doing as individuals? And let's take the capitalist side of this for a second. Capitalism depends on customers. When you have billions of people trapped in poverty, they're terrible customers. And people who have very large families in most societies, uh, particularly disadvantaged societies, tend to be trapped in poverty. They're terrible customers. They can't buy even life's necessities, let alone any luxuries. So those who wanna take the capitalist side should be cheering for lower population growth and population stabilization so that people can thrive and they can be better customers. There's more to it than that, but that's one way of looking at it. If you are poverty stricken, you certainly don't have much fungible money to deal with, that's for sure. And you do are not going to be a major customer of just about uh, any, any company out there. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps a podcast, or you're with an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you just have a computer, you like our shows, and you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're talking about population and population development and with an expert who's been in this field for, for decades now. Mr. John Seeger is the president and CEO of Population Connection. 
John, we were talking about the economic aspects. It also raises the retirement aspects. We hear about, well, the Social Security system. When it was created, I guess, back around 1935, I think there were like 50 or 35, 45, 50 workers who would contribute to the retirement system. Today, I think it's three to one or somewhere along in there, 2.5 is the ratio. How will a system like that be affected and how can we guarantee that there will be a retirement system, even though there is a diminishing number of workers contributing to that system? For any social system that involves transfer of resources, you've got to have resources to transfer from one place to another. And that depends more than anything else on the productivity of that society. And one of the best ways to have a more productive society to generate more resources is to make sure that everybody who can possibly um, be as part of that society is well-educated, is healthy, is able to be an effective contributing member of that society. And having smaller families makes that easier. Now, Social Security uh, is going to fall short in terms of necessary funds in a few decades. You can virtually close that gap entirely by lifting the earnings cap on Social Security. It makes no sense, and I'm just paraphrasing Warren Buffett at the moment, it makes no sense for Warren Buffett to pay a lower rate effectively than his executive assistant. Those who are fortunate enough to make enough to hit that earnings cap um, are lucky people, and it would only be fair and reasonable for everybody who's working to pay the same rate. If you do that, the funding gap virtually disappears. That is, that is a very easy way to do it, and Congress could do it in one day if they put their minds to it, but you got a lot of forces in this country who are opposing it, and of course the the K Street lobbyist group will certainly gin up support to, to attack that, that's for sure. Well, let's talk about the role of women. Women are obviously critical in any family or uh, with the uh, reproduction cycle. How important is it to educate women and when women are educated, and I'm talking about girls too, not just uh, older women, but when they're educated, what difference does that make in this whole discussion? And what difference does it make as far as helping a family, a community, a society, or even a country move forward? If you could do just one thing to transform the world, it would be to educate women. So many of the challenges we face globally are due to the fact that we ignore the rights of women and the laws of nature. And the best way to start upholding the rights of women are to affirm that every single woman should have access to a full range of educational opportunities so she can be the person she wants to be, not who somebody else wants her to be. There are other key elements here. One of the ways to facilitate that and to help overcome a lot of obstacles, including funding challenges, is to make sure that every woman everywhere has access to the full range of reproductive health services. It's not going to solve every problem, but when a woman can decide the trajectory of her own life, free of outside interference, amazing transformative things happen everywhere. And of course, many organizations are on record and have a track record in helping women to achieve that particular goal. When I talk about 
of females or women in general, I think of the uh, sustainable development goals, the United Nations uh, goal number five is to promote gender equity and to empower women and young girls. How, how important is that to take this whole message worldwide and not just have it in the United States? It's incredibly important. We need to recognize uh, that societies differ around the world. And some of them have more opportunities, some have less, they have different traditions, but you can find a way in most societies, I hesitate to say all societies, but in most societies, you can find a way to move forward. I'll give you an example of, of one place in Africa where what they do to encourage girls to stay in school is if a young girl attends school every single day of the week, Monday through Friday, Friday afternoon, she takes a market basket of food home to her family. Now, it's unfortunate that it takes that kind of thing to raise her value within the family, but if it helps, let's do it. So there are a lot of ways to accomplish this, but you can do so much in a single generation in any society if you uplift women and you remove the barriers that prevent them from achieving what they can do. I don't care where it is, it works if you're able to do it. And family planning is popular probably with every family. They may not classify it that way, but it certainly is. It's also a touchy topic in some cultures, given the cultural mores and the folkways, the religious influence in those countries. How do, how do we diplomatically deal with that particular issue of family planning so that it's not viewed as some type of imposition of, uh, say, cultural imperialism or something like that? The first key is to make sure that we don't do it. By we, I mean, with all respect, people like you and I, who look like you and I. The key to these programs is local engagement. You want women who look like, talk like, dress like, cook like, worship like the women in any given community to go in there and to sit down and have private personal conversations, woman to woman about private matters. There's an old saying, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And so the key to these programs is not doing it at 30,000 feet, but doing it locally and doing it in a way that reflects the local cultures and the local traditions, but at the same time affirms reproductive rights. You need to do both. It's absolutely critical. And I think aid agencies, folks, uh, service clubs that are doing overseas projects and that type of thing have come to that conclusion. You have to talk with the people in the community, the people who are being affected, and to determine what they want done, how they would like to do it, and the role that they can play. And it's not just someone coming in saying, here's what you should do, move forward in this direction. Well, John, in the last three minutes we have left, let's just say, what are three suggestions that you would like to make that will move this discussion forward and help people better understand the whole population development issue? Well, let me start with something that may seem a little uh, at odds with what I just said, but I don't think it is. I was reading something recently where someone said, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly, which offhand sounds like very bad advice. But I think the way I take that is when we're looking at mammoth global challenges, whether it's climate, whether it's population, whether it's the economy, 
it's easy to get paralyzed by the enormity of the challenge. There's something any of us can do, whether it's in our local community by finding a way to help out, uh, whether it's sending a small check to a local group or to an international group, or, or whether it's uh, helping at a soup kitchen or something else. My wife and I uh, are proud to sponsor a child in Africa. And I know it's not gonna change the world, but it might change something for Joseph in Zambia. And so we can all do something. So we shouldn't get too caught up in the complexity of it. The other suggestions I would have is for people to find a group or organization that seems to share some of their interests and values and join that group, become part of a community, whatever that community is. We're often so separate from each other. Try to overcome that. And, and I think the last thing, and again, this is gonna seem like awfully simple and generalized advice, but if something doesn't make sense to you, ask questions and, and don't, don't give up until you get a clear answer about anything that anybody's doing. You're amazed how far you can get just by asking simple questions over and over again. I've seen people transform their communities and the world just by being persistent. So that's pretty general advice, but that's what I'd go with. I think it's very sound advice, good suggestions. And the population issue is one that's going to affect all of us. And as I recall, I think by 2050, the UN predicts we're going to have nine and a half to 10 billion people on the planet if we stay on our current trajectory, which is quite a marked increase from 7.8 billion and we're heading upward. So the planet has finite, it has finite resources, but we have infinite possibilities of expanding the population and the two just can't, they cannot come together. They say it's the twain shall never meet at that point. But John Seeger, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thank you very much, Bill. And if we want a different future, we need to change the now. We certainly do. Thank you. Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives.